Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Football Uncovered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn, Leeds, Portsmouth, Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs as well as having two special episodes. One about life after the Premier League and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host Will Brazier and with me every episode is Sporting Intel's Nick Harris. Nick how are you? I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to this. Lots and lots to talk about. Yes, it's not just me and Nick this season. We're also joined by a very special guest, usually a fan of the club we're talking about, or someone who has followed them very closely and knows all the inside stories. As well as sharing all their usual inside stories from each of the clubs, we'll be looking at their owners, how the current owners came to be, where they've taken the club so far, and of course, what is next. And we're delighted to say today's guest is Phil Wall. Phil, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely stuff. Now, you're a long-suffering... Well, it says long-suffering Arsenal fan here, but as a Birmingham City fan, I'm not very... can't be that hard about the... Uh, oh, it's the Carling Cup 2011, but it's not all bad, is it? No, I mean, there have been plenty of good times. Um, as you say, lifelong Arsenal fan, which I inherited from my father. Um, so the first football match I ever saw on TV was the 1971 FA Cup final, where we actually had to go next door to our neighbours because we didn't have a TV until later that year. Um, so I was about five then. I then supported Arsenal from a distance uh, through the 70s. Though we did we did occasionally go and visit Highbury. I first went in 1972. Um, but there were a lot of wilderness years for Arsenal in the 70s. Then we had a cup win in 79. And then we had a few more wilderness years until George Graham turned up. And then lots of good years. Uh, and then Arsenal turned up and it was, it was taken to sort of stratospheric levels for a while. So there have been a few low periods, but as an Arsenal fan, you can't really complain over the last 30-odd years, I don't think. We've uh, we've had a pretty good run, as you say, uh, long-standing fan. I'm still I'm also involved in the Arsenal Sporters Trust, where I've been on the board for about 12 years. Um, and I've contributed to the Guna fanzine for about 20 years from the late 90s. So, yeah, lots of involvement. Love that. Nick, have you got any connections to Arsenal? Well, could I just also say I first met Phil through the Supporters Trust when, as with my sporting intelligence hat on, I gave a presentation about what was the point of Arsene Wenger and what was his future. This is back in 2013. And Phil's blog, angryofislington.com, where the site slogan was, I came, I saw, I got annoyed. Uh, Phil's a good follow on Twitter um, and uh, very wry views on the club. So thanks, Phil, for coming on. Um, in terms of my connections, well, obviously Arsenal are one of the clubs to whom my club Southampton have become a feeder club in relatively recent times. Um, Liverpool are obviously the, our main client, but Arsenal signed Walcott, Oxley chamberlain Callum Chambers, Cedric more recently, although um, maybe less said about that, the better. Also tried to sign Gareth Bale, Luke Shaw and uh, Morgan Schneidlin, but didn't. Second, um, professionally, I was the first reporter to suggest uh, after a tip-off from a sports business contact in America that Stan Kroenke wanted to start buying Arsenal shares with a possible view to owning a stake or indeed taking over the club. Um, That was a back page in The Independent in, in 2007. And that story began, Arsenal involved in advanced talks with billionaire American sports tycoon Stan Kroenke about forming a groundbreaking partnership with Kroenke's Major League Soccer franchise, the Colorado Rapids. Uh, and then we talked about his primary focus being 
uh, Arsenal pushing for expansion in America and a tie-up there. Uh, but Cronkey, who was married to, is married to a Walmart heiress and also had a personal fortune then of billions of dollars, um, was perhaps looking to start buying up an ownership uh, stake. I think a lot of people forget, but Granada TV, ITV Granada TV, had a stake in Arsenal at the time, 9.9%. And actually by April, just a couple of months later, Cronky had indeed bought that 9.9% stake for £42 million as was on his way to becoming uh, the majority shareholder and later the full owner of the club. And then the other connection, just again, not to Arsenal, but I was invited to speak to the Arsenal Supporters Trust in 2013 about the, the existential point of Arsene Wenger. What was he good for? Um, I produced a big document, which you've all seen. I sent it to you. Phil obviously saw it and heard it back in 2013, in which I predicted that there would be a Wenger renaissance. Um, I was wrong, obviously, or rather only just a bit right, if you count the FA Cups uh, that he won in 14, 15, 17, but we'll come back to that. Um, So those are my connections. I enjoyed Highbury. I went there as a fan a number of times. Um, but no other connections to Arsenal as such. Phil, for you, as an Arsenal fan, over the last 25 years, what have sort of been the biggest turning points, both good and bad? Uh, well, Arsene's arrival, Arsene Wenger's arrival, was 25 years ago this year. That was clearly massive. The club had maybe just lost its way a little bit in the mid-90s after George Graham's success. So Arsene turning up was massive. I think the nature of his partnership with David Dean um, was something I don't really think we've seen in English football probably before or since. A manager and a director working closely as a partnership, but each with a very distinct role. Um, And they got Arsenal going toe-to-toe with Alex Ferguson and Man United for eight or nine years. Nobody else uh, had a look in during that period. So so Arsene turning up and then getting stuck in. Um, Towards the end of that sort of eight or nine years, um, another turning point, in probably for all of English football was Abramovich turning up and the spending power that he brought into football. Um, obviously, that led to David Dean trying to get somebody to do the same for Arsenal. So then Kroenke and Usmanov got involved. Um, David Dean got kicked out. Man City suddenly got rich as well. Kroenke took over Arsenal as a majority shareholder. So, it, you know, it seemed like there was a turning point off the pitch every couple of years. What do you think, Nate? What are some of the turning points for you? I totally agree with Phil. I mean, Arsene Wenger changed English football and not just Arsenal as much as Pep Guardiola has done and probably more. And I'll explain why. I mean, Wenger came in, he was an economist uh, by academic background. He was um, absolutely into his sports science. There was the joke at the time, that, particularly from Ian Wright, about having to eat broccoli. But he transformed sort of the dietary habits of the team as much as he did sort of the tactical uh, habits. He had a drinking culture at the club that he needed to deal with, um, which he did. Knew the French market and started recruiting players from all over the world in a way that hadn't been so much the case up to that point. And then obviously once he started producing uh, the teams that he did on the pitch in different eras between sort of the first double season of 97-98 up to the invincible season of uh, 2003-04 he sort of just transformed the club and everyone else in the division everyone else in football decided or saw what he was doing and started to copy him so a lot of these things that he introduced to Arsenal that became seismic changes in the game uh, sort of a challenge to this monolithic culture of 
English football at the time to, to be a much more philosophical exercise as well as a sporting exercise as well as a conditioning exercise he changed the game massively and was very 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 successful at it for those first sort of six years and absolutely that was a period when basically without um, him at Arsenal at that time quite possibly you would have had Manchester United being the dominant force in English football for the first 12 or 13 years of the Premier League era instead of um, you know, just until uh, he came up when it was basically Arsenal and Manchester United. So, Phil, what, what do you reckon for best buys under Veng? I mean, um, Thierry Henry's got to be up there, hasn't he? Henry and Vieira are the ones that stand out. And Vieira was was really the linchpin of that team um, from the moment that Arsene turned out because Vieira was obviously signed a, a few weeks before Arsene's contract actually started. Um and he was a phenomenal player. I mean, as a as a midfielder, you could only put even Roy Keane in the same bracket as him. And I would say that Vieira, obviously I would say Vieira was a better player than Roy Keane. But there was nobody else in English football at that time, I don't think, who compared to the effectiveness of Vieira as a midfielder. And then uh, obviously Anelka was very effective for a couple of seasons and was, and was replaced by Henri, who was even more effective. You know, there were many others. It was just a great team. Obviously, Bergkamp was there already. Um, Perez, Overmars. You know, the stunning football that that team produced for four or five years, I don't think has been seen in England before and, and hasn't been seen since. The football is just not as good as that team. You know, there's Brazil 1970, there's Cruyff's Ajax, there's, you know, the Barcelona team that Cruyff built, and there's there's Arsenal in uh, early Wenger years for me. That's, you know, that's just entertainment peak for football. Okay, but back to David Dean leaving Arsenal in April 2017 when left his post as vice chairman after 24 years amid a row with his fellow board members. The suggestion at the time, and I don't know, Phil, if you've got some insight, was that he'd effectively told Stan Kroenke that the club could be his in the future, but not discuss this with the board. He'd already agreed to sell his stake to Kroenke to make him the biggest, largest shareholder. And the rest of the board released a statement saying that collectively their 45 and a bit percent would not be sold for at least a year. The late Danny Fisman with 24%, Nina Bracemel-Smith nearly 16. They were the key shareholders. And Dean's exit at the time really left question marks over the future of Wenger, to whom he was very close personally as well as professionally. Wenger called it a sad day for the club. Ian Wright said the players were unhappy. Um, let's just talk for a few minutes about how damaging that was. Um, so in terms of David Dean leaving, from the football side, I'm very definite, uh, and I think you agree with this, Nick, that David Dean had a very good and positive and big effect on what Arsene Wenger was doing in those early years and made Arsene more effective by taking the pressure off him and doing the deals for him and saying, OK, tell me the player you want, I'll go and sort it out. And he did that and let Arsene concentrate on the football, concentrate on building the team that he wanted to build. And that was brilliant for those seven or eight years from Arsene turning up. And then, then you get to the point where Abramovich turns up in English football. Chelsea suddenly become a major force, having been sort of hanging around third or fourth in the table for a few seasons. And then a couple of years after that, then there's a fallout within the boardroom. David Dean departs. But by that stage, Arsene Wenger had been there nine years. So I think his management style was probably getting a little bit stale anyway. And there are lots of reasons why this happens. But Arsene has never been one to be challenged by somebody else in a footballing discussion. He wants to do things his way and he's not interested in being 
challenged by an assistant manager or a number two in any footballing sense who will put forward ideas and, and challenge what Arsene is saying. He's surrounded himself by people who would just say, yes, Arsene, I'll do that for you. Yes, you're doing it right, boss. And after a while, that's going to lose its effectiveness. And Fergie avoided that and kept reinventing his backroom staff and reinventing his teams and building new teams and ended up with 13 Premier League titles to Arsene Wenger's three. So I think that's probably, for me, a bigger factor than David Dean leaving, that Arsene was going to decline anyway because his style was that he wouldn't listen to anybody else. And I think there's bound to be a shelf life for that. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I totally take on board that point, and actually I'm inclined to agree with you. My argument before we discussed this was uh, David Dean was prepared to, to get his hands dirty in terms of going off and doing all sorts of deals to get the players in. I mean, it's not a player who had a particularly glorious career with Arsenal, but there was a 16-year-old at the time in 2005, Carlos Vea, a Mexican then playing for Guadalajara. I mean, he signed for Arsenal as a 16-year-old, but the massively complicated way in which he got from Mexico as a 16-year-old to Europe, because he actually spent time on loan at Celta Vigo, Salamanca, Osasuana. He hardly played for Arsenal in the first few years. But basically, under the international transfer laws, he wasn't allowed to move transcontinentally from Mexico to Europe to play football. So that could only be justified if his family were going to be moving from Mexico to Europe for non-footballing reasons. And it just so happened that that came to pass, that his family were able, surprisingly, just as he needed to move, as Arsenal were interested in signing him, his family did move for non-footballing reasons to Spain. And I think David Dean was fully cognizant and helped that happen. That's just one example of him sort of putting these deals in place. He obviously knew lots of key agents as well and was very much hands-on with dealing with transfers. He was also and remains a close personal friend of Wenger. They lived near each other. They dined together. They still keep up with each other's lives. They're very close friends. So I personally saw that loss of Dean as a massive blow. But equally, I'm totally on board with the view that, that he probably could have become stale anyway. So then we move on to summer 2008 uh, and the Conservative old board are suddenly now thinking that Kroenke was the lesser of the two evils versus Alisha Usmanov because Dean had sold his stake to Usmanov. Talk about the reason, please, Phil, why the Arsenal Supporters Trust matters and why you as a trust cared about who owned the club and what was going on. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. I think I like to go back to the fact that um, English football clubs and in, in European in general, they are actually clubs. They're not sports teams like you have in America. They're sports clubs. They start in the community. Um, they, you know, Arsenal was obviously founded by a group of factory workers. Was a community club in Woolwich, owned by supporters. Uh, around uh, 1910, they were losing money, couldn't support themselves, and Henry Norris owner of Fulham at the time, came in and came up with this plan to move Arsenal to Highbury and part funded that. But even Henry Norris didn't want to be a majority owner. He, he never was a majority owner. Um, there were still thousands of shares owned by fans. It was always a club for the fans and the supporters. And, uh, you know, richer people eventually bought in, but nobody had a majority or tr tried to take over. So there was still that sense that it was owned by the supporters. And then you had the generations of Hillwoods and Bracewell Smiths on the board since the 1930s. And that all added to that sort of air of custodianship and the board running the club on behalf of supporters, thousands of other small shareholders. Um, and although, you know, football gradually changed over the decades, um, 
even up to the 1980s uh, when David Dean bought in. So David Dean bought, uh, I think it was 1,161 unissued shares in Arsenal um, for about £290,000. And that valued the whole club at that time at £1.75 million. So even then, you know, um, after 100 years of football and 100 years of Arsenal, the club was was worth £1.75 million in total, according to that valuation. And Peter Hillwood famously said that David Dean was just putting in dead money. It was, you know, he was never going to see that again. It was, it was going to go. And of course, he ended up selling his stake for about £75 million. Yeah. Um, and the club, pre-COVID anyway, was, was worth close to £2 billion. So it's a massive difference in financial scale. Um, and it means that for the owners, it has just become a business and nobody else gets to say, but we still kind of cling to this ideal that if it matters to supporters, then supporters should get a say, uh, and even if we're not shareholders anymore. So it's really about trying to hold those in charge to account and trying to make them do what's fair to supporters and good for supporters and also good for employees of the club and not just good for profits. So that's that's why it seems important, because it's important to all those people who support Arsenal, and many of them, until Cronkey came along and bought all the shares by compulsory purchase once he'd made a deal with Usmanov. Even at that stage, there were hundreds of small shareholders who all felt like they had a stake. And now we don't have that stake and we don't have that connection. Yeah. So we feel less that it's our club now than we did. Why is it important for the fans to be able to own shares? Obviously, having a shareholders meeting where you can physically go along and sit in a room and hold to account the owners and Cronky and Wenger turned up every year as well, didn't he? He did. But how important is that to just be in the room and say, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And, and why is it important beyond that simple holding to account of the people that are in charge of the club that's been important to your family and everyone else's family for generations? Well, as I say, it's, you know, it's the emotional thing of feeling that you're part of it and it's not just something separate from you. you know, it's, it's part of your life. When there were still other shareholders before Cronky forced the rest of us out. We did have an AGM every year where people could go along and question what the board was doing. And to be honest, you didn't always get a very good answer from them, but you had that opportunity and you had the feeling of being part of it. And from their side, the directors of a club uh, or any company with shareholders have legal obligations to act in a way that is to the benefit of all shareholders. So there's that kind of legal aspect of it that has been lost, but that's not really the big thing for supporters. The big thing for supporters is the emotional attachment and wanting to feel part of it. And even people who weren't shareholders were still aware that many supporters were shareholders. So there was that sense of of a community that I think has gone and sort of been uh, trampled underfoot by Stan Kroenke. And And how has he and his company and its representatives been in terms of liaising with you as a supporters trust i mean because you 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 were well organized well staffed and by that i mean there's lots of different legal and other expertise and on your trust board you know and a lot of fans look to you as as being the body that would lobby the club over ticket prices and whatever else i mean what is that relationship like now so when the supporters trust um started and uh soon after that then there were good relations with the club and danny fisman was quite keen on the on the supporters trust um but then gradually the club distanced itself from the Sporters Trust and stopped giving us that kind of access. And when Cronky came in, we did actually send representatives to go and meet him when he first joined the board in America. 
And he had a meeting and he, he gave assurances about wanting to talk to fans and keeping fans involved. And then that's never really happened. It's, it has been very much lip service. You know, he'll occasionally send a, a Gazidis or another director out to talk to fans or have a meeting with them. But the relationship, uh, certainly with Stan, has been pretty much non-existent. Yeah. And with the rest of the board, it's certainly been trickier in recent years than it was. Like I say, Danny Fisman was very keen on the Sporters Trust, very keen on having fans involved, and that's that's just reduced gradually over the years. Yeah. I mean, I think the big issues here for, in terms of Cronky's ownership is since Cronky's owned the football club, and in fact since he's been a shareholder, Arsenal have not won the Premier League. Um, it was 2013 when I came to speak to the Arsenal Supporters Trust um, to present this thesis about Arsene Wenger, what is he good for? So at that point, Arsenal hadn't won a trophy since 2005 FA Cup. They'd moved to the Emirates, which had been hugely costly in 2006, and hampered them. And um, my thesis, ultimately wrong in 2013, was that... Wenger was on the cusp of major success again at Arsenal. He did go on to win the FA Cup in 14, 15, 17 Premier League, kept up that fantastic record of finishing in the top four and getting into the Champions League, uh, fourth in 2014, third in 2015, second in 2016. And that runners-up slot to Leicester's miracle title was must have been all the sweeter because it meant that in a two-horse title race between Leicester and Spurs, Spurs finished third. So that must have been quite a sweet runners-up spot for Arsenal. But back in 2013, because of what Wenger had done, and I demonstrated in this big you know, document that we you had at the time, and I've circulated before the podcast, we showed how Wenger had punched above his weight financially in terms of resources against achievement consistently, and I felt that maybe he would be able to do it again. I did posit some theories about the wilderness years, lack of spending on the pitch because of uh, of investment in the stadium. Fergie was still the Man United manager until 2013. Chelsea under Abramovich have been serial challengers since 2004. City were now, with Mansour going to be consistent challengers. So realistic title winners had gone from Manchester United and Arsenal basically in the early decade of the, of the Premier League, invincible year, to more than four by 2013 with Chelsea. Both Manchester clubs, arguably Tottenham if you're being generous to Spurs, Liverpool maybe. So that's where the situation was. But nonetheless, you've got the fact that you've got an owner who's never won the Premier League and hasn't really, apart from, uh, you know, that the thing we talked about, come that close when, as you said, they blew it. Um, it's more interesting in owning an asset with an appreciating value than winning trophies. Uh, well, to give you a very concise answer, yes, he is. <laughs> um, and I think he's he's always said that. There's a quote from him that you wouldn't get into club ownership if all you want to do is win trophies because it just becomes a money pit. You just throw more and more at it. Uh, so I think first and foremost is the value of the asset. Secondly, is is he going to make a, an ongoing profit from it? And then thirdly, is the sporting side. So as long as there's a you know a Premier League deal of the size that there is, then the value of Arsenal is going to stay relatively stable. I mean, things like COVID aside, which very difficult to see what the fallout of that is going to be on the value of a club. But that aside, he clearly wants to be in a position where he can take money out of Arsenal at the right time. And if he can't do that, then he's happy to sit on it and let the value gradually appreciate and just bide his time because he's still got the asset there. He's not putting anything in. He's not taking anything out. It's not that other people putting money in and Stan isn't. He's doing the same as everybody else ever did, but it's in a different 
modus operandi of football, as it were, yeah. because other owners now do put a lot of money in. And that's why Arsenal are falling behind the bigger clubs. I mean, we'll come back to the recent years and what the strategy of the club has been since Wenger left. But let's just briefly, albeit painfully, revisit Wenger's last two seasons. Um, they were painful, finished fifth in 2017, which at that point was the worst ever Premier League finish of Arsenal in a full season. And then six in 2018, which got worse again. The Wenger out brigade was getting cacophonous from a large chunk of fans, or certainly from a chunk of fans, obviously cheer-led by uh, Piers Morgan. Um, and then there's the we owe him for the past and be careful what you wish for view was also common amongst a body of fans. Now, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I guess as a neutral, I was probably more on the Wenger's be careful what you wish for, you owe him for the past, um, sort of reluctantly, because I would have liked to see him thrive against the clubs that were just chucking money. You know, I would like to see Southampton prosper because you've got a good coach in Pochettino or Hasenhutl or whatever and lesser resources. That's just how I approach football. I would like to see innovation and coaching rewarded over pure money. Where were you and your mates around that time in those painful last two seasons? I think by the time we got to about 2016, I was thinking, okay, Arsene is not going to change. He's become very set in his ways. Uh, he's making every decision from, you know, who's playing on the left wing to how much broccoli is served in the canteen. You know, he's, he's running the whole club. He's deciding how long the grass is going to be cut. He's sorting the floodlights out. He's doing everything. And he got to the stage where he wasn't going to change. And I couldn't see that the glory years were going to return. And therefore, it was time for him to move on. Sadly, and with great thanks for what he'd done in the past, that should have been the end of it. But of course, he clung on. He won the FA Cup. Now, the FA Cup, to me, while it's fantastic, it's a brilliant day out. I've been to a couple of FA Cup finals. You know, it's a great trophy to win. It's the tradition, the, you know, the oldest trophy in football, all that stuff. But it's still a bit of a lottery when it comes down to actually winning it. So the fact that Arsenal have won it so many times in recent years is partly because... Arsene is a good manager and now Arteta as well winning it last year. But but it's a partly just a statistical quirk that one club has so much success in it. Um, I saw that I saw the this week actually, Crystal Palace haven't scored a goal in a cup competition for two seasons. Is that right? Man City have scored 99 cup goals since Crystal Palace last scored one. Really? That is because Man City are a great team and Crystal Palace aren't, but that's just a statistical quirk that they haven't scored for two seasons. And in the same way, it's a slight quirk that Arsenal have won the FA Cup so many times since Arsenal Wenger joined. However exciting it is and how much fun it is for the fans. But the point being that those cup wins persuaded enough people that Arsene was still doing a great job, but he really wasn't. The, the decline had already set in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, by 2015-16, I was thinking, this is it. Um, we shouldn't really be carrying on with him. But the board were quite happy. The money was still coming in. The occasional trophy was there. The Champions League was still, at the time, a thing every season. So why change it? For me, they left it too long because the club, as an organisation, had got too stale because Arsene was doing everything and deciding everything. And they had to rebuild everything behind the scenes and on the pitch. And that's where Arsenal have been left now, that it's just, it's constant rebuilding. It's rebuilding everywhere. And from a fan's point of view, you hope Arteta has got it right on the pitch and is building a team and a squad which can go back to challenging for the title. But behind the scenes, to be honest, it still looks like a bit of a mess. Yeah. Will, as a neutral in this, 
having no dog in the fight. What was your view of Wenger, both in his pomp and the painful departure? Well, yeah, like at the start, Phil alluded to, obviously it was revolutionary when he was coming in and then by the end of it, I quite fascinating because an outsider, I just didn't really, really understand his stubbornness and like you can literally see with Ferguson bringing in those different assistants that, and obviously he, he wasn't on the coaching field that with his new assistants, they'd bring new impetus and, and the game changed so much as well, doesn't it? Because by the end of his tenure like player power is such a massive thing whereas at the start of his career he could sort of almost rule the roost and not be a big dictator but lead the way and, and the players would follow but but by the end of it that wasn't the case and then with the stadium it just always seemed to be especially from an outsider perspective that this stadium was like the pot of gold at the end of the road and then once that was paid for and, and they'd get there and it would sort of be back to challenging Manchester United and that sort of one two dominance but it just never really came. And then plus with the, I mean, the transfer seems from like 2006. I think it just feels like they've either missed out or had the chance to sign every best player in Europe, but never pulled the trigger on it. And I know some of those names get added to the list probably out of spite, but it, yeah, just haven't haven't got it right. But they also became a selling club as well. I mean, you know, they actually were selling their best players to rival clubs. Well, which is probably epitomised with the, the Van Persie transfer, isn't it? It's, I always find it interesting hearing him speak about how he was trying to put suggestions to Wenger and to the board about how he felt the club should be run and ultimately led with him going to Old Trafford and winning the title. So if we go to Wenger goes and the model changes as Emery comes as head coach, the club's first head coach in 2018, under a structure that was still relatively new, including Sven Mislintat as head of recruitment and Gazidis was CEO, although they both went. Fast forward to Arteta coming in as manager in late 2019, so a year and a bit ago, won the FA Cup, finished eighth in the Premier League. And then the head of football, Raul, left last summer and Arteta was manager again, not head coach, working with the CEO, Vinay, and the technical director, Edu, I mean, what sense do we make of the sort of strategic switching so many times in the last two, three years? Yeah, it's very difficult to perceive much of a long-term strategy here with so many ins and outs. Um, Gazidis uh, obviously was a stable point in the boardroom for sort of 10 years or more. Now, without him, um, I don't claim that Gazidis was superb in his role as chief executive but he was certainly uh, a force of stability and of understanding modern football whereas you could argue that the other Arsenal board members you know so Chips Keswick, Peter Hillwood uh, when he was still on the board until a few years ago, uh, Lord Harris, they're not uh, people who are understanding football um, in the same way that uh, that certainly an Arsene Wenger understands football or an Alex Ferguson understands football or understands what clubs need to do. They're just people who had sat in the boardroom for a long time. And when you have to reorganise, and as you know, as Will said, things change and player power has really come into it and agents, the role of agents and everything else. Now, when Peter Hillwood became Arsenal chairman in the, I think it was the uh, 1970s when his father died and he inherited the title of Arsenal chairman, he didn't have to deal with agents. He didn't have to make multi-million pound deals. He put a contract in front of a player for, you know, £100 a week or whatever it was, and uh, and they signed it, and that was it. So it's a totally different world, and, and I think Arsenal are struggling to get a structure that's adapted to the modern world because the board structure was so outdated and 
with a lack of diversity. The average age of the of Arsenal board members until recently, um, you had Ken Fryer, who's now in his 80s, has only just left the board. You had Peter Hillwood, Chips Keswick, Lord Harris, Stan Kroenke himself is 73, so he's no spring chicken either. And the average age of the board was over 70, which is it's not a forward-looking organisation, if that's going to be the case. On forward-looking, obviously as an Arsenal fan who's lived under the riches of Wenger, what is the point of Arsenal for you? Uh, well, I think in footballing terms, from the position we are now and without, you know, without judging how we've got to this position, I guess you can say the point of bringing in Arteta and the way Arsenal should be going is to build back towards the level that they were at 20 years ago in a slow and steady way, making sure that everything is in place to do that. So realistically, I can't see Arsenal winning the league next season or probably the season after. Um, I can't see them becoming a major force like they were in Wenger's early years for quite a while. So they're not going to set the world alight in that. They're, in terms of the big six that we've had in English football for a while, they're reduced to making up the numbers at the moment based on turnover rather than on-pitch performance. So I think for the majority of fans who can be realistic, the point is to try and be the club that we used to be and we have the potential to be and not dwell too much on past glories that aren't immediately going to be recaptured. And and you can't just turn the clock back and you can't override the fact that there are richer clubs who are going to have a statistically easier chance of winning the league every season than Arsenal have. So you've you've just got to set your position and build slowly. But to go back to our earlier discussion, I think we've kind of lost the original point of Arsenal, which was that it was a club in a community and it represented the community and the supporters who were shareholders were literally part of the club. And we we don't have that anymore, but people still have the emotional attachment. And I think we just have to realise and accept the position that we're in. And after a few years of not being in the Champions League, you do start to accept that you're not in the Champions League and you don't have a divine right to be in the Champions League, for example. So you've got to to build back towards it. Um, And the hope among most Arsenal fans, certainly ones that I talk to, is that Arteta can be the right man for the job, but he's learning on the job and it's going to take a while. So we sit and we're patient. That's the new thing for Arsenal fans. Last thing. I'm not an Arsenal fan, but if I were an Arsenal fan, I think I would be looking for things to be excited about at the moment. I think if I were an Arsenal fan, I'd be excited at having Saka in my first team squad. I think he's a tremendously exciting player. I'd be excited at the possibility of what Odegaard might do and is doing and potentially signing. So I'd be excited about that. And my, if I'm an Arsenal fan, but I'm not, my realistic expectation, so for say the next five years, would be to get back into the Champions League as the most realistic thing I think we could achieve at best. I'm not an Arsenal fan, but you are. What are you excited about about Arsenal? And realistically, what can be the peak of Arsenal in the next five years? The As you said, the young players coming through is... There's a great crop of young players. Um, not all of them are going to make it at Arsenal, but I'm sure most will make it at other... Premier League clubs or abroad but but yeah it's in some ways that's slightly reminiscent of the early George Graham days where he got a very good crop of youngsters that came through and won the title a couple of times or you know in those days all English now and nowadays we have players from all over but certainly Odegaard is looking great and if he stays he's a, a you know more hard-working Mesut Ozil type so that would be great so on the pitch yeah there is if Arteta can sort a few issues out 
and fill a, maybe one or two holes, then there's there are good prospects on the pitch. And, and I would say a realistic aim would be to try and get back in the Champions League, say, three years out of the next five. You can't say we're going to be there every year. There's a lot of competition for it. The way football has gone, all kinds of different permutations are being thrown up. But if if you come back in five years and Arsenal have been in the Champions League three times and maybe won a domestic cup or got to a final or maybe a Europa League trophy, you know, something like that, I think that's realistic. I don't think Arsenal are realistically going to challenge for the big two trophies in that period. But I think there is grounds for optimism. There we have it. Another football uncovered in the books. Massive thanks to Phil there for some great insight on Arsenal. It's not all doom and gloom. There is a bright future ahead. Uh, if you want to hear more football uncovered, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. And if you're on iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a review because it keeps me in a job. 